Okay, let's look at our scripture that can be found in the bulletin or on the screen. This is John 12, 37 through 50. Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I've, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. The word of the Lord. Well, I don't know if you're a TV watcher or not. Lee Ellen and I have started watching Obi-Wan Kenobi which seems sacrilege to have on TV, but it is on the Disney Channel and we are enjoying uh, watching uh, Star Wars, uh, you know, shows. Uh, but you know, if you really want to get at the heart of TV, you really want to enjoy TV, you've got to go to reality TV shows, right? Reality TV shows are where it's at as far as TV is concerned. And here are a couple of my favorites. Uh, Hoarders, right? What a great show, a, a reality show that features compulsive hoarders, people who are addicted to filling their homes with objects and how that spills out into their lives. Uh, it is a train wreck to watch hoarders, isn't it? it? It's hideous and yet you can't look away. How about Fixer Upper? Anybody watch Fixer Upper? Such a nice show, right? Chip and Joanna Gaines, they uh, turn their Fixer Uppers into the homes of their dreams. What's not to love about Fixer Upper? Or one of my favorites, Keeping Up with the Kardashians. What can we say about keeping up with the Kardashians? Uh, intellectually rigorous, <laughs> thought-provoking, uh, very, you know, a, a deep insight into the human maladies of the soul is keeping up with the Kardashians. But actually, I do have a, a reality TV show that I very much enjoy and have watched all the seasons of is uh, the show called Alone. Anybody watch Alone? Awesome. It's an adventure reality show on the History Channel, and it follows the self-documented struggles of these uh, 10 individuals who are put alone in the wilderness uh, where they have to live as long as possible uh, using limited supplies. They're all pretty much given the same limited survival su supplies, and they basically have to figure out how to deploy them and use them in order to stay uh, uh, basically healthy as long as they can. They, they can tap out any time that they want or they get medically tapped out, but whoever's left at the end uh, gets $500,000.
Um, what's fascinating to me is how they all get the same things, about the same things, and how they use them. You know, some immediately start building a shelter. Uh, some immediately start hunting and trapping. Some start building a boat. And it's the decisions that they make that ultimately hinge on their failure or their success. Now, what does this have to do with the sermon that I'm talking about? Well, what it has to do is, in the sermon text, there are three different groups. Two express and one implied. And they all get the same thing. They all get the gospel. And the question that we are going to examine is this. What do they do with what they got? In other words, other words, how do they take the gospel and use it, apply it to their life? For the decision that they make ultimately ends in life or in death. So we're going to do the same thing. We all have been given. We're here given the same thing. We've been given the gospel. The question is, what do we do with it? Because it's not just what you're given. It's what you do with what you got. We're going to look at three different of these three different groups, the two express and the one implied. The first group are those that do not believe the gospel. They choose to just push it away. Then there's a second group, and we'll call those uh, those who half-heartedly believe the gospel. They don't truly embrace it, and they don't truly not embrace it. And then finally, there's the third group, those who wholeheartedly believe and embrace the gospel. So let's look at the first group, those who do not believe the gospel. Jesus has just spoken right before this passage, and he's told them that the light is among you for a little while longer, and walk while you have the light. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus is summing up the words that he's been speaking for the first 12 chapters of John, that he is the light of the world that he is the bread of life, that he is the way to salvation. He is the one who can bring reconciliation to God and peace in their lives. He's laid out uh, the entire gospel, that he is the bread of life. And we see the conclusion in how this particular group responds to the gospel in verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. Jesus has preached the gospel. He's demonstrated the gospel in these miraculous signs, many of them, but they still did not believe. And it goes on to say that this was anticipated by the prophet Isaiah, verse 38, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's interesting that passage comes from Isaiah 53, 1, and and if we know Isaiah 53, right after that, it describes Jesus, that Jesus grew up like a young plant, and he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. And he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as from one whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. What this passage is saying is that the reason that people didn't believe is they looked at Jesus and they saw nothing special about him. They saw no form or beauty or majesty. Jesus was not what they expected or they wanted, and so they actually despised him. John goes on in verse 39 saying, therefore, they could not believe. Not they would not believe, but they could not believe. For again, Isaiah has said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they would see 
understand and turn and I would heal them. This actually comes from Isaiah 6. Remember where Isaiah, where God says, who, who shall we send for us to go? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And God sends Isaiah and he says to Isaiah, go and say to these people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they would see and turn and be healed. Is God instructing Isaiah somehow to make the hearts of his listeners back then dull and hardened? No, that's obviously not something that Isaiah has the ability to do. Rather, what God is saying is that the message that I'm sending you to preach will actually harden the hearts of the people. Now, think a little bit about that. Isaiah had some very hard things to say, but he had some very hopeful things to say, right? About the Messiah, for he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought his, us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. It had the opposite effect rather than bringing people to God. And it appears that what Jesus is preaching, this good news of the gospel, has had the same effect on these people. Rather than softening their hearts, it has actually hardened their hearts. Now, we have to look at this passage closely because it appears to say that God is the one who is hardening their hearts, that God is actually the one who is making it impossible for them to believe, that God is at fault for this. It's at times like this that it's important that we read our entire Bible so we understand the context. And if we read our entire Bible, we know a couple of things about God. The first is that he cannot cause anyone to sin, and unbelief is most certainly a sin. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 18, 6, but if anyone causes one of these little ones to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and for him to be thrown into the depths of the sea. James puts it this way, let no one say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So in other words, God is not hardening people's hearts. See, the reality is unbelief is already hardwired into every single human being when we take our first breath on this earth. Romans 3.10 puts it this way. As it is written, none is righteous, not one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one does good, God? Well, I've seen people that do good, unbelievers who do good. And that's what we where we have to understand that God gives a common grace on this earth across all people, even unbelievers, that restrains evil. The Bible says this, that the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Jesus said God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You see, our natural response is unaided to hearing the gospel is to reject it. 
Because the gospel communicates to us that we are sinners in need of a savior. And we just don't want to hear that. So God doesn't need to harden our hearts so that we won't believe. God just needs to get out of the way. God does not actively stop people from believing because people need no help to not believe. God would never force someone not to believe. See, there will never be anyone in hell that will say this, I wanted to believe, but God would not let me. So what is the conclusion we can draw from this? What it shows us is without a special work of the grace of God to overcome our rebellious, unbelieving nature, we will not believe, for that is our nature. Reminds me of a story of a man who lived on the outskirts of a town, and a station wagon pulled up. It was full of people, and uh, the, the driver said, hey, we're, we're moving to this town, and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the town. What are the residents of the town like? Well, the man said, well, what were the people in your old town like? Well, they were nice, and they were kind, and they were friendly, and they were gracious. And the man said, I think you'll find that the people in this town are just like that as well. Well, he drove away, and another station wagon pulled up. It was another family who was moving into the town. And the driver asked the same question. Hey, we're moving to this town, and we wanted to know a little bit about what, what the people are like in the town. The man asked the question, well, what were the people like in your old town? Oh, they were mean. And they were nasty. They were liars, and they were capricious, and they'd steal from us if they could. And the man said, I think you'll find that the people in this town are just like those people as well. Now, what's the point of the parable that I'm giving here. The point is that it's in our nature not to believe. Without the grace of God, without him moving in our hearts to awaken our eyes and our hearts, we will not believe. And so what are we supposed to do with this? Well, here's what we're supposed to do. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the reason you are a Christian is not because you were wiser or smarter or better or nicer than the other people around you. The reason that you believe in Jesus Christ is because of his grace, because he opened your eyes while your destiny was unbelief and death. He, kept, he stepped in and he saved you not because of the righteous things that you have done, but because of his mercy. See, some of us have an uneasy relationship with God and Jesus Christ because we think the reason he chose me was because I was good. I was religious. I came from a Christian family. I heard and I believed and I did the right thing. And the choice was conditional, and it was on me. But now I better toe the line, right? Or he may unchoose me if I'm not nice enough or good enough or following the company line. 
And so you live in fear that you're one sin away from God casting you off. You need to hear that his choice to bring you into his kingdom and to make you his child is not because you deserved it, but because he wanted it. And so you can rest in the sovereign election of God. Why does God love you? Because he wants to. And there's nothing you can do or not do to change that. Well, if you're not a Christian and you're sitting here listening to this sermon, are you asking the question, what if he doesn't open my eyes? My answer to you is simply this. You're here today hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you feel him tugging on your heart, respond in faith. The Bible says creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to reveal. And you may think that God would never choose me. I'm too far gone. I am a sinner. If people really knew what I was like, if God really knew what I was like, he would never receive me. God's love for you is based on his son and his choice. So respond in faith. For as the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This brings me to my second group of people, those who I would call exhibiting half-hearted belief. These are those in verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so they would not be put out of the synagogue. So there are these group of people, and some of them are actually the leaders of the people. And they believe that Jesus actually is the Christ, the one who has been sent from God. He is the Messiah. But they're afraid to confess it publicly. They're afraid to show anyone that they're a Christian because they'll be ostracized. They'll be put out of the synagogue. Some of them are in privileged positions of leadership in the Sanhedrin, in the priesthood, and they'll have to, uh, they'll be kicked out. And so their conclusion is to keep quiet. And what is it that's motivating their hearts? Verse 43, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Are these people believers? I think the answer is no, based on the rest of the scriptures. Look at Matthew 10, 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also would deny before my Father who is in heaven. Even earlier in the book of John, in John 5, 44, Jesus said, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Now this statement here, they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory comes from, that comes from God, reveals something about humanity, about each one of us. We all seek glory. Notice it was one 
or the other. There wasn't a, a third choice where they weren't seeking glory at all. We all seek glory. Well, what exactly is glory? The word in the Greek, doxa, is the word, and it means dignity, honor, praise, esteem. In Hebrew, the word is kavod, and it actually literally means weight, like the weight of a person. I think if you want to sum it up, it means satisfaction, a understanding in our heart and mind that who I am is enough. See, each one of us has an intrinsic need for validation from someone that we are worthy of honor and praise. And where did that come from, this need that each one of us has for glory? It, was, it comes from the fact that we were made in the image of God. And God is glorious. And when God made us, he made us as the pinnacle of all creation. That when he saw us, he said that we were very, very good. And he put us in a position of authority. We were made to rule over the world, all, over all of creation. See, Adam and Eve, when they were brought into the world, were brought in experiencing complete satisfaction, honor, and renown. God himself saw Adam and Eve as perfect in his own sight. But then came the fall, when it wasn't enough for Adam and Eve. And they sought the glory in other places, and they fell from their position. They experienced the shame of their sin, right? And they covered themselves up and they hid from God. And they were ousted from their position as the leaders of the world and they were banished from the garden. And rather than having the glory of God upon them, they were clothed in shame. We experience that every day. The Christian philosopher Peter Crift put it this way. We behave as if we remember Eden and can't recapture it. Like kings and queens dressed in rags who are wandering the world in search of their thrones. If we had never reigned, why would we seek a throne? If we had always been beggars, why would we be discontent? People born beggars in a society of beggars accept themselves as they are. The fact that we gloriously and irrationally disobey the first and greatest commandment of our modern prophets, the pop psychologists, that we do not accept ourselves as we are, strongly points to the conclusion that we must at least unconsciously desire and thus somehow remember a better state. Have you ever wondered why you care so much about how you look? Or why we obsess over our golf scores? or why we hurt so badly when we're publicly embarrassed, or why we become so despondent when rejected by those we truly care about. It's because we've lost something necessary for our satisfaction, and we cannot be satisfied until we find it again. See, we were designed to experience the fullness of glory, and once it's missing, a search begins. 
And so we go from garbage heap to garbage heap, toy to toy, fix to fix, relationship to relationship in search of glory. And what's so deceptive is at first the thing that we find seems to give us glory and satisfaction, but the satisfaction is short-lived, and soon the search resumes. And we think, if only I had athletic or career success, popularity, the right spouse, I would be satisfied. But the reality is we never will be. Counterfeit glory is a narcotic. The more we get, the more we need. And the more we need, the more dissatisfied we become. And the more dissatisfied we become, the more extremes we will go to to find it. There was a quote by Madonna who was interviewed in Vanity Fair magazine some time ago. She says, I have so many regrets and I have none. I wish I had done a lot of things, hadn't done a lot of things, but on the other hand, if I hadn't, I wouldn't be here. But then again, nobody works the way I work. I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, and that's always pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. That is seeking the glory of man. But Christ came into the world that we might again be bestowed with the glory of God. John 1.14 put it this way, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus brought the glory of God to earth. And Colossians 1 says that there's this mystery that's been hidden for ages and generations, but now has been revealed to the saints that God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of this glory, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. To receive Christ, to bring him into your heart, to be forgiven and acknowledged by Christ is to receive again the glory of God. He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is that of the prodigal son. Remember the younger son who was born into an important family, who had a position of stature and prestige, and a father who was proud of him, but it wasn't enough. And so the son asked for his inheritance and went off and squandered all of his money in wild living. And then at the end, when he was done 
and all of his friends had deserted him. All he had left was shame. But he had this idea, right? I can go back to my father. He's no longer my father, but maybe he'll make me like one of his hired men. At least I won't starve to death. And so he went back. But the scriptures say while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The father said to his servants, the son tried to explain, I'm not worthy. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. That would have been the signet ring, the family ring. And sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That is the glory that God wants to bring to each one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. See, the glory, that glory was available to these people, but why didn't they take it? For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This reminds me of an acquaintance of mine who's a pastor in the PCA. A woman wanted to see him, to sit down with him in his office. Let's call her Judy. And when Judy sat down in this pastor's office, she said this. I'm planning to end my life. It will happen in a few days after Christmas. Only you will know that it wasn't an accident. Frankly, I'm looking forward to dying. I have no reason to continue living. And so this was a, a last-ditch effort to see if there was some purpose for living that she had missed in her nearly 50 years of existence. The pastor asked, what caused you to come talk to me? She explained that over the past year, her son and his wife had been attending our church, and during that time, they had experienced a radical life change. Though she held little hope to find meaning from religion, she realized that there was nothing to lose in meeting him. After the pastor heard the final details of her disappointing life and her many dead-end searches for something that could make her life meaningful, the pastor surprised her with what he said. Judy, I have to commend you. You are smarter than most of us. You have discovered something that many never realize. You have realized that there is nothing in this world that can give your life meaning. You have come, in a sense, to the end of life's internet, while the rest of us are surfing away with the hope of finding what you know isn't there. You know that when hope is gone, the desire to live is gone too. And it was there that this pastor began to tell her about the glory that comes from Christ and the grace of Jesus Christ who got up on a cross and died to bestow that glory upon her. Judy responded to the gospel and is alive and well today. So the question I have for you is simply this. Are you on the treadmill? Are you seeking the glory that comes from men? That's why you stay with that boyfriend or that girlfriend. Because you hope that in the end they will validate you. That's why you're addicted to pornography. Because it lies to you and continuously tells you that you're valuable and you're somebody special. 
but it's an empty staged lie. It's why you work longer and longer hours at your work because it owns you. And you neglect your kids because you're hoping for validation from your boss and from your coworkers. See, in the end, you'll never find it because these things do not have the ability to validate your soul. So give up on seeking glory from the world. Look to Jesus Christ. He is the one who can take away your shame. He is the one who gives you his righteousness. And he is the one who gives you a new name, a son, a daughter of God. And he is the one that will say to your heart, this is my beloved child. With them, I am well pleased. This brings me to my final group, those who exhibited wholehearted belief. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in he who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Jesus is saying, if you walk the path of wholehearted belief in Jesus Christ, you will see God the Father for who he really is. Like the prodigal son with a smidgen of faith saw the Father. You will begin a relationship in which God bestows his glory on you and gives you a new status. Jesus said in verse 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. See, when you decide to wholeheartedly believe, Jesus not only gives you the glory of God, but he gives you a new way to live. We can now seek the glory of God. See, all God gave us when we come to faith is an initial deposit of glory. He wants to continue giving us further deposits of glory in our life. And how does he do that? Oddly, we receive more glory as we give glory to the God of glory. Jonathan Edwards said, the happiness of the creature consists in rejoicing in God, by which God is also magnified and exalted. See, God puts you, if you believe in Jesus Christ, on a path that can only lead to glory. 1 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we who with unveiled faces all contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. At the end of our life, when Christ comes again, we will experience full glorification. It's a theological term. And it refers to a state when a believer is brought into the perfection of life, when his body, her body, is resurrected and redeemed. And there's nothing left to change. And we will be who we were meant to be. Right now in this world, life is still broken. We can never experience the full glory that is to come. But knowing that that is our future, that that is our destiny, brings all of this world's brokenness into perspective. 
So how do we live this life of full faith and belief? By renouncing all counterfeit glories and putting all of our hopes for satisfaction on Jesus Christ. That's what Paul did, didn't he? But whatever was to my profit, I consider loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. Consider all of my accomplishments rubbish that I may gain Christ, being found in him, having a righteousness of my own that is through faith. Today, make your decision not to unbelieve, not to half-heartedly believe, but to surrender all to Christ, that you may gain Christ and find your identity in him. Live for him. Live from him. That is the hope of glory. Because it's not just what you're given. It's what you do with what you got. Let's pray. God, thank you that in the midst of our shame, you sent the glorious one who died a death of shame on the cross that he might bestow his glory on all who believe. Lord, help us to renounce counterfeit glories and to look to you, the one who makes us glorious. Um, for that is why you came. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.